The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Oh, happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to Squawkbox. Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore, and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. So, freshly announced, UBS says Credit Suisse CEO Ulrich Kerner will join its executive board as the Swiss lender names the new leadership team tasked with tackling the integration of its former rival. Chinese trade data, well, it paints a mixed picture for the world's second largest economy. Imports contracting, contracting almost 8%. Export growth also stalling. California's financial regulator admits it failed to press Silicon Valley Bank's bosses for reform before the lender imploded in March and pledges to do better in future. Concerns over U.S. financial stability persist, according to a Fed survey, while a separate report shows lending requirements are set to tighten for the rest of 2023. President Biden prepares to welcome congressional leaders to the White House in a bid to break the debt ceiling deadlock as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warns of, quote, economic catastrophe, telling CNBC lawmakers have only one option. The only option that really leaves our economy in good shape is, and our financial system, is raising the debt ceiling and making clear that Congress stands behind the basic principle that America pays its bills. Morning. <laughs> Very good morning. Yeah. Very good morning. I, I think the announcement we've no. just had doesn't require you to get on a plane to Zurich, but no. it's fascinating nonetheless. Yes, um, but the announcement that we've had is very frustrating, I would say, because it leaves many more questions than answers at this stage. Uh, very good morning, Karen. So, so let's just tell you what the uh, story is that we're talking about here. Just as we were about to come to air, we were all working through our makeup and our pre-match routine. And then suddenly, um, to hit the tape, this announcement from UBS, which just giving, giving us a little bit more flesh on the bones in terms of how they intend to treat the Credit Suisse Group. So let me read here from the Business Wire announcement that we've had this morning. Credit Suisse will operate alongside UBS and its business divisions, functions and regions under the UBS Group. Uh, so uh, under this uh, operating uh, process going forward, the CEO of Credit Suisse, Ulrich Kerner, will join the UBS Group Executive Board uh, at the close. There are a bunch of other changes around executives and who will go where and who will do what. And I could walk you through all of them, but I don't think I'm, I'm going to because that's the detail and you can catch up with the detail if you're very interested in the story and maybe we'll flesh that out. But the point here is that this is, it still seems to me, very much an interim announcement. So UBS is telling us this morning that Credit Suisse will exist as an entity and its operations will run alongside the UBS brands. UBS will effectively be in charge but the Credit Suisse name will not go away for the time being, and many of these operations will continue to operate as Credit Suisse businesses until such time as a decision is taken as to how to merge any of these entities into UBS. So this does a number of things here. You know, we were, we were 
parroting this line about the $5 trillion powerhouse in the wealth management space that this business becomes. And everybody was assuming that there would immediately be the benefits of scale that would come to this bank as it challenges American rivals in this space. It happens in that way in a sense because Credit Suisse will operate under the auspices of UBS, but it doesn't quite happen in the way that everybody thought it would happen very early on. So this is a holding statement, it seems to me. It's a watch this space and we wait to learn more detail about how the various business units are going to be brought under the UBS umbrella and whether the Credit Suisse name goes away at all or whether UBS believes that there is value still attached to the name now, maybe in the wealth management space in Asia and some of the markets where it has leadership over rival UBS businesses. So pending further integration, Credit Suisse RG will continue to rely on its established governance and risk control frameworks, although some new policies will be put in place to ensure that UBS Group has effective oversight. Obvious question, was it the regulator, the Swiss government that wrote the press release or was it UBS? I mean, if there is a, a bid to try and preserve the Credit Suisse brand, is that a nod to the fact after the wash up of a very quick consolidation here that there were concerns about not having a deep enough pool of banks in Switzerland, even though there are smaller names there. This is, don't forget, a, a very well-established name, a veteran of industry, uh, a name that had been run for, for many, many years. And there were questions whether you saw the consolidation, whether that also damaged uh, Swiss, Switzerland as a, a banking hub. So I wonder whether there's been a pushback here and the wash up from regulators saying, let's try and keep Credit Suisse perhaps down the track. It can be spun off when it's in better shape. And when we talk about all the, the language here about initially, that suggests that there will be consolidation perhaps down the track. But but what if that's not the case? Oh, it will be the case. I mean, th th this is happening. And it's happening, as you say, under the auspices of the regulatory authorities who cannot afford another banana skin so to speak was, that was a polite way of putting it as well uh, and, and i think this is just what we're going to get now load of regular updates this is going to be top down of course you work out who you want from the management team you work out who's going to be your human resources person your risk officer etc etc yeah. um the key here was the fact that what did you expect almost? What did our viewers expect? UBS and Credit Suisse will continue to operate independently for the foreseeable future, with UBS having the uh, integration, will carry out the integration and the phased approach. I mean, what else would one have expected? And so I think this is very sensible. They're, they're working way through it. They're going to give regular updates. But actually, I don't think there's anything particularly substantial that we can get their teeth into. We can't say, oh my God, they've looked at this division and there is a problem here. Or we've looked at this division, actually we think it's substantially undervalued. Or we're going to sell this division or this whole team of Asia specialists or whatever is leaving. I don't think we've got anything like that. I think this is very, very logical as well. The one thing I will say though is that the share price, we've got it on the screen there, 1748 Swissy as well. It's going to really struggle to rally until we get clarity on what the combined business looks like. This is a share price which got down to, and I think at the low on the trading on the announcement day, um, I think, well, when Credit Suisse was imploding, I think we got down to land about a 15 handle Swissy. I'm pretty sure there or thereabouts. Closing low was the 15th of March at 1674. We're not much above that as well. So until we get clarity on what the combined operation is gonna look like and what the best bits are, I think this is a share price which is going to struggle to find its former glory, which only on the 6th of March, for instance, UBS was trading above 20 Swissy. It's, it's, um, it's funny, isn't it? Because it's going to be complicated. 
It's, com it's complicated already, and I think this is a nod to something that we talked about a lot round the desk, about just how challenging the integration process was going to be. And it's become more challenging, partly because of what you've said about uh, regulation, but we've got Swiss elections this year. This has become a political football. The unions are agitating very aggressively, which then ties to the elections, because they don't want to see significant job losses at this stage. The politicians don't want to see significant job losses over something that they effectively helped create. So that will have an impact on them. But I think within the, uh, the statement here, it is clear that credit, uh, UBS ultimately takes legal responsibility now for UBS. That's well understood. The integration, as they've said, of the business and legal entities will take time. From an American regulator perspective, the SEC and all appropriate bodies will want to understand what the legal point of connection is now between these businesses so they know who to call when there are problems in business units. But just to restate the ambition here, which is something that UBS has told us consistently, whether it was Ralph Hammers or uh, more recently Mr uh, uh, Motti, the, the, business, the, the business will still have the ambition of being a capital light banking operation will de-risk, will run lower risk-weighted assets. So I think that's interesting in the context of just how we think they're going to try and run down risk positions in Credit Suisse from right. here on in. No doubt, Tells us a little bit about the process. No doubt transformation taking place, but you know, big questions I think for anyone who's covered cultural change. How difficult is it to change the culture behind the scenes if you've still got those Credit Suisse banners up? Does that just stunt the process? That it, I've got to say, you know, huge transformation is required at this stage I when think you think of what's happened. And if you're still keeping elements of the past here, does it make it a much more challenging task to, to change the culture of the business? Well, I've seen some howlers in integration. And I think right. this one's easier in terms of culture than some. I hear what you're saying about the, the risk profile of a lot of the Credit Suisse operations. And clearly, they, ha they have had, have, I think it's fair to say, they've had a risk management problem over the years. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in this mess in the first place. But I, I do remember the Numura team in the Lehman's offices uh, in Canary Wharf. And uh, I, 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 dare I say it, that was one of the biggest cultural um, clashes I've ever seen in my life. And actually being on the floor, talking to traders as well, that was a very tricky one. I think this one's easier. Well, it's, it's just going to be interesting to see what the departures from Credit Suisse look like now from people who would be considered vital to the business. I mean, I don't know whether you saw Zoltan Posar has just left the business. He was a very uh, respected economist. We, we've had time with him over the years and that will be a loss, I would have thought, to UBS as well as Credit Suisse. But maybe he was offered terms to stay that he didn't feel measured up at this point. There's something else going on as well. And the fact is we have a global economy which is slowing down aggressively. We have a day by day we have another story about another concern in financial markets or slowdown. In fact, we've had the sluice last night, which we're going to talk about, the senior mm. loan officers' opinion survey. Things are getting tighter. There could potentially be a recession. What's going to be the ramifications of European higher rates on all kinds of sectors? You were talking about the Swedes, and we'll do that later on as well. So, unfortunately, the macro timing for this as well is blooming awful because there's a lot of other things going on, which might have meant that UBS would be paring down certain operations anyway, regardless of what they're doing with the Credit Suisse. If you're an international hub, it does have ramifications, doesn't it, as you take a look at the macro. And speaking of which, let's get into the Chinese numbers, because exports grew at 8.5% in April, increasing for the second straight month and topping expectations. 
Imports contracted sharply, though, down almost 8% in missing estimates. And let's get out to Sam for more. Sam, I think we've been hearing a, a whole bunch of company reports and updates recently suggesting that China isn't reopening as fast as some had expected. But is that necessarily a bad thing when we think about the inflation challenge that some central banks are still dealing with? Good morning to you, Karen. Well, you make a very interesting point. I think what we've seen is certainly the rebound in Q1 is starting to fade and it is pointing to some troubling signs, you could say, for China from a global demand standpoint, but also when you look at that domestic demand as well. I'll start with those imports because they were quite a significant miss, as you say, 7.9% of a decline. The market was looking for a flat performance and that is falling further from what we saw in March. Now, that tells us a lot about the global demand story from the perspective of uh, a lot of those imports are intended to be re-exported, but it also certainly raises um, some concerning trends when you look at the domestic picture, and that raises questions as well as to whether that domestic demand, which China is very much counting on at the moment to mitigate some of that softer external demand, is really going to be able to pull the weight here. And so economists have pointed out uh, that we can probably expect to see weaker inflation data coming out on Thursday from China uh, because of the domestic picture looking rather unpatchy and fragmented at the moment. We've only got the services sector really the only bright spot um, in this recovery at the moment. So this very much speaks to the productivity story over in China at the moment. If you look at some of those major commodities, those inbound shipments, you had crude oil down, you had coal down, you had soybeans uh, also down. And we already had clues about this when you look at the South Korean exports, which are a key indicator for those Chinese imports. They were down about 27% in April and that was around the 10th month we've seen a decline. So this is regularly raising questions also about broader Asia supply chains as well. Um, but certainly certainly a red flag as well for those exports. Uh, they came in more or less in line with what the market was expecting, a smidge higher at 8.5%. Um, that was, as I said, largely anticipated because it was coming off that 14.8% that we saw in March. So naturally we would see that after factories were playing catch-ups after COVID. But um, of course, the next thing to watch is uh, the policy response um, to see what the government comes up with, because right now uh, consumption, as I said, is really the only bright spot. But we know that there are worries also about income and we know that bank savings are um, up as well. So right now we're looking at a split picture as far as the Chinese markets are concerned. Not much change in the currency off the back of this data as well today. Back to you. Sam, thank you very much for that. The Californian financial regulator says it failed to address problems at Silicon Valley Bank before it imploded in March. In its latest report, the state's Department of Financial Protection and Innovation admitted it did not take adequate steps to ensure the lender resolved its problems when they first became known. The report comes after the Fed admitted last month that its poor oversight and loosened regulations contributed to SVB's failure. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says regulators are now in a much better position to protect customers. The only option that really leaves our economy in good shape is, and our financial system, is raising the debt ceiling and making clear that Congress stands behind the basic principle that America pays its bills. Right, as mentioned, U.S. banks are expected to tighten lending standards over the rest of 2023 amid recent volatility in regional lenders, according to a Fed survey. 
The central bank's quarterly sluice senior loan officer opinion survey uh, also showed requirements are set to increase for commercial and industrial loans. The report highlighted deposit outflows, bank funding costs and liquidity as reasons for tighter lending. It also talked about uh, actually weakened demand, which I thought was very interesting in commercial and industrial loans for firms of all sizes and, of course, uh, for CRE. Now, uh, financial stability fears are lingering in the United States, according to the Fed. Respondents to its latest survey on U.S. financial and economic health cited persistent inflation and tighter monetary policy, banking sector stress, commercial and real estate uh, issues, plus geopolitical tensions as major fears. Several sectors were identified as having elevated potential for trouble, including money market funds, stablecoins and hedge funds. However, the report also notes that leverage is generally low across household and business debt. What about the ceiling, sir? Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden is expected to meet congressional leaders at the White House today to discuss how to avert a debt default. Biden is likely to stress leaders must take action and discuss how to begin negotiating a budget. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned the U.S. could breach its debt ceiling by June the 1st. That's earlier than expected if Congress doesn't act. She says congressional leaders have just one option. The only option that really leaves our economy in good shape is, and our financial system, is raising the debt ceiling and making clear that Congress stands behind the basic principle that America pays its bills. We're not a deadbeat country. Now, we've just listened to uh, Janet Yellen talking about the debt ceiling, um, but I don't want to dwell on the debt ceiling. I think it's more interesting to go back to the loan officer's report mm-hmm. and to talk a little bit about earnings. I mean, unless anybody wants to do the debt ceiling, but it seems to me the debt ceiling is kind of binary and out of our hands. Either they'll get a deal organised and there will be some pain taken on the part of the Democrats uh, to get that debt ceiling, or there won't. So at the moment, we're just foaming at the mouth and wondering whether it's going to happen or not. But I think the loan officer's report actually told us a lot about the state of credit and lending in the US at the moment and whether we need to be concerned about the ability of the financial sector to continue to provide the fuel for economic activity in the United States. A couple of points. I don't think that the debt ceiling issue is immune to uh, what we're seeing more broadly. I mean, we've just gone through a whole cycle, weeks and weeks of concerns around the US banking system, and that continues around some of the regional banks. So where you park your money at this point is a question for a lot of Americans. The debt ceiling issue, putting more uncertainty on top of it, as we count down to what are, frankly, key talks between both sides of the aisle this week, that is instrumental, I think, for the the plumbing for the health of the financial system. And I think uh, volatility could very much step up if we don't see some progress at this stage. When it comes to what we're talking about on the lending side, I mean, we've had something very similar out of Europe in recent weeks. I mean, the ECB's report telling us that uh, credit to the real economy is being constrained. And think about those small businesses across the United States. If they're not getting access to credit, they're not getting the same sort of terms they used to get, the sort of pressure that piles on to small businesses at this point in the cycle when you've already got them paying more on wages, paying more on import costs by and large because they haven't got the ability to negotiate with some of the suppliers like some of the big companies do. And uh, you're continuing to see uncertainty for them in terms of planning ahead. This is a, a major issue when it comes to business confidence. 
I didn't think that the sluice showed much change, actually, from the previous quarter. I think there were slight issues, including the 53% citing a deterioration in their current or expected liquidity position versus 31% in the previous. But actually, if you look at almost every other metrics, mm. it wasn't much more different from what was previously said in the previous quarter. And I'll go through a few of them just, just to yeah. make the point. Um, for CNI loans uh, and credit lines, 94% cited less favourable as opposed to 100% previously. 74% cited tolerant, reduced tolerance to risk, 75% re previously. 57% cited a worsening uh, industry-specific problem versus 54% specifically. So by and large, yes, conditions are tighter. Yes, there are more concerns in parts of the lending spectrum. But by and large, I thought it was actually steady as she goes. I didn't think it showed a dramatic shift in what we previously know, which backed up other lending data we've had within the last few weeks, which says, yes, OK, things are a bit tighter, but not very. So... But that, I think that, that's very interesting. Uh, they, well, anyway, I don't know what you want to say to that. No, no, no. I mean, I don't, it was very nuanced, yeah. I think, is, is the, probably the word here. And what it appeared to imply is that the challenges may be ahead of us rather than yeah. current it's or behind tighter, us. But not very. Because the, 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 the number of banks that tighten terms of credit, 46%, so 44.8% in the prior survey. So you're right. It's not a significant spike. But it does imply, perhaps, that we are going to see a tightening in lending standards over the rest of the year. I mean, obviously, we're, we're, we're taking one number here and we're trying to extrapolate from that. Sure. But it might also imply that um, demand for loans will weaken further, too, if we're going to see more difficult standards applied to borrowing. Yeah. And yeah. Yet, so, I mean, you know, there are a lot of different ways you could interpret the data. If you torture any of these numbers enough, you'll come up with the right answer. Yeah, it just said, again, yeah. I, I go across the willingness to loan to consumers' mortgages. Again, yeah. it was a little bit more negative than previously. But again, no dramatic change, despite despite the enormous ructions we've seen and we continue to see in the regional banks. But there were subtleties here and it was around the commercial loans and also industrial loans. That's where you saw tighter standards and, and weaker demand. I mean, that was one area I think that you were watching very closely because of all the different ructions. First up, working capital, where are you going to put it in terms of some of these banks? Uh, the money used to just sit there on deposit. There are concerns about how much of that's guaranteed. Do you need to split it between various banks now to ensure it's safe? Do you feel like you have adequate guarantees in terms of taking on more loans? Well, if you're reluctant to take on more loans, you're just second guessing whether it's the right move at this stage. That does impact the growth story across the United For States. Sure. So the subtleties, I think, are there in the report. Uh, OK. Um, subtle, nuance, I think, are the words of the days. Um, the one thing I will say, just, just moving this conversation onto this side of the Atlantic, did you see Skipton Building Society yesterday? Uh, and if you want an alarm bell, ladies and gentlemen, then we go back to comparisons with 2008. And I'll read you the, the headline of the story, which uh, my eyes boggled at once again. Uh, UK, this is from The Guardian. Um, so The Guardian, um, Rupert Jones in The Guardian. UK mortgage lender to offer the first what since 2008? Absolutely. 100% loans since 2008. Uh, Skipton Building Society aims product at renters who cannot save enough for a deposit. Well, not being funny. Why are you lending people money if they can't get a deposit together at 100% at a point where the UK housing market could potentially have a dip given the fact that we're going to see rates going up again uh, for the nth time this week as well. You're setting these people up to fail with a 100% mortgage. 
Don't take my word for it. Just look at history. Have we got the mortgage rate? <laughs> What's the offer on that one? Well, I, don't Give it, I mean, I don't it's so high history. anyway now when it comes to. Just but do you know what? Things. That's not even the worst of it. it. During the peak, and I don't know if you remember, Karen. I, I think it's before your time with uh, these two old curmudgeons. But but actually, we saw 110, 120, 130 percent mortgages, and uh, again, they were absolutely disastrous for the people who took them out. 125 percent in Northern Rock back in the day. And uh, there, there's a story. What happened to Northern Rock? Uh, coming up on the show, Saudi energy giant Aramco prepares to report quarterly earnings with criticism still ringing in its ears after posting the sector's biggest ever full-year profit. And for more on the US debt ceiling deadlock, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Okay, everybody, it was a kind of a and breathed session yesterday. So much going on. The earnings season, just we're over the hump on that one as well. Masses going on the regional market as well. Concern about the debt ceiling as well. Inflation figures, concern about the sluice as well. But actually, pretty calm in the end. Dow was flat. S&P was flat. NASDAQ was two tenths of 1% higher as well. But I'll tell you what, there was a bit going on beneath the surface as well. Did you see PacWest again? I mean, well done if you're making money out of it and you're good at trading this one. I really do mean that because, oh my goodness me, there's an opportunity to, uh, to get on the wrong side. So they were up 30% at one stage, but then they lost virtually all of that to close up 3.6%. Western Alliance is up 11% then closed pretty much flat. The KBW banking sector was up a percent, but uh, closed down over 2%. So big volatility in certain sectors of the market, but on the surface, glacial. We had the sluice, which we've talked about, but you've got coming up, as Jeff was saying, concern about the debt ceiling, and indeed we've got a whole raft of inflation data in the next couple of days. Would you like to look at Treasuries? I would, that's for sure. So we're going to do that. 3.98, look at that, picking up, back up to nearly the forehandle on the two-year, the 10-year, uh, trading around 3.5%, the very long end of the curve, 3.815% as well. Dollar crosses. Is there ever a day that goes by at the moment where we don't read a demise of the dollar story? But have a look at the longer term chart. Have a look at a chart for this century. It doesn't necessarily tell you a picture of a longer term dollar demise. But anyway, we have apparently, yes, they've seen uh, the pound up at multi-month highs over a year highs as well. 126. Didn't quite get to parity, did it, you lot? You know who I'm talking to. Uh, Euro dollar trading around the 110 level as well. Dollar yen 135. Dollar yuan 6.922. Asian uh, indices are trading thus. A uh, big rally on the Nikkei, 1% higher. Declines on the Hang Seng, 5 tenths of a percent easier. ASX 200 down 2 tenths of 1% as well. So no discernible pattern on the back of the Chinese import export data. Shanghai Composite up 5 tenths of 1%. US futures look thus. Thus, <laughs> I was looking at the wrong screen. They are, again, pretty glacial stuff going on there. But, uh, Karen, we need to switch focus to the Middle East. 
We do. Uh, we're waiting for Saudi Aramco numbers to hit for the first quarter. But what we've got, uh, a couple of announcements on dividends. And just to walk you through them, it intends to introduce a mechanism for performance-linked dividends in application to, in addition to its base dividend. So a, a second round here in terms of a payout. It intends to target such performance-linked dividends to be in the amount of 50 to 70% of Saudi Aramco's annual free cash flow net of the base dividend and other amounts, including external investments to be determined with the annual result. All dividends, including performance-linked dividends, are declared at the board's sole discretion and uh, these performance-linked dividends are intended to be distributed quarterly. And let's get into the weeds on this with Dan, who's also looking ahead to what the first quarter is likely to produce. Dan. Hi, Karen. Well, Aramco is set to report results shortly, and this dividend announcement ahead of the Q1 earnings is a real sweetener for Aramco investors. As you say, it's going to be based on 50 to 70% of annual free cash flow. And when you look at the number on cash flow that Aramco produced last year in 2022, well, it was sitting at 148.5 billion dollars. So clearly, that would be a win for Aramco investors. But at the same time, this new dividend is going to be paid quarterly. It's going to be based on the performance of the company and of course at the sole discretion of the board. So that's going to be interesting to watch. Remember as well, it comes in addition and on top of the dividend that Aramco already pays to the Saudi Arabian government. That is the uh, primary receiver of the bulk of its earnings and it will continue to pay that dividend to the government as well. In terms of the Q1 earnings here, well, we are expecting another strong result from the world's largest oil and gas company. The Q1 number expected to cross at $31.2 billion, according to analyst estimates. When you look at how this stacks up in comparison to what we saw on this quarter of last year, it's actually expected to be lower. Aramco posts $39.5 billion in the first three months of last year, so lower on the quarter. But when you look at the full year number here that Aramco produced last year, well, look, record net income, $161.1 billion for 2022. That was up 46.5% over the year, the largest annual profit ever achieved by an oil and gas company. So all eyes on these numbers when they break, likely in the next hour or so. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.